If you like what you're hearing on the Security Ledger podcast, consider subscribing to one of our newsletters like The Daily Ledger or The Weekly Ledger. You can learn more and sign up at securityledger.com slash subscribe. Hello, and welcome to the Security Ledger podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this week's episode number 118, in the United States, the midterm elections are just a week off, but it's not clear that states and counties are any better prepared for cyber attacks against election systems than they were two years ago. But securing elections may not be as hard as people make out. In our second segment, we'll speak with Srinivas Mukamala, the CEO of RiskSense, about how artificial intelligence and risk-based approaches to securing election systems can pay off. But first, the massively multiplayer online game Fortnite isn't just the most popular thing in the under-15 set. It's a massive moneymaker for its publisher, Epic Games. And for cyber criminals, it's a gift that keeps on giving. Recent weeks have brought stories about malicious mobile downloads posing as Fortnite apps on Google Play and other platforms, while hackers have been fencing stolen Fortnite accounts on Instagram and in underground forums. The fact is, games are big business, and the most successful among them now resemble mini economies with marketplaces, buyers, sellers, and a vast array of virtual goods with a valuation in billions of real-world dollars. That puts a premium on security for game software and infrastructure. In our first segment of the Security Ledger podcast this week, we invited four top vulnerability researchers from the firm BugCrowd to talk to us about their work on games and gaming platforms. Jason Haddix is BugCrowd's Vice President of Trust and Security. This is his second time back in the Security Ledger Studios. And he's joined this week by J.P. Villanueva, Trust and Security Engineer, Dan Trauner, a Security Engineer, and Adam David, a Software Engineer at BugCrowd. In this conversation, the four of us talk about how popular games often fall down on security and what game makers can do to improve the security of their creations. Thanks all so much for uh, taking the time to come in and talk to us. Uh, this is a really interesting issue, namely the cybersecurity of uh, games. I guess, um, JP, Adam, Dan, you all described yourself uh, as gamers. When we're talking about games, um, what platforms are we talking about? And I guess while we're at it, what games are we talking about? Uh, I'm Adam David, software engineer at BugCrowd and very avid gamer, Twitch watcher. For me, mostly PC, although growing up, I, I did have like a lot of consoles, um, but later in my life, I just mostly focused on PC, mostly into like RPG games, single player story, rich type of stuff. And I'm JP Vonaleva. I'm a trust and security engineer with BugCrowd. Uh, for me, I'm mostly a, a console gamer. I do play some PC games, but mostly I'm playing on console, usually on PS4 or on uh, Nintendo Switch or the 3DS. Uh, I'm Adam David, software engineer at BugCrowd, and uh, yeah, and I think PC for me as well, but we're seeing a lot of interesting uh, platform-related software on PC, stuff like Steam, where people are managing their entire game library of all kinds of different titles through this single platform. My name is Jason Haddix. I am the VP of Researcher Growth at BugCrowd now, and I am a PC Master Race guy. I, I own both consoles uh, and play games on them when I'm forced to, when they're exclusive, but uh, mostly I play on my PC. Um, right now, I'm uh, currently playing uh, Destiny 2, 
uh, World of Warcraft, mm. uh, Dota uh, 2, and um, I play a little bit of Overwatch every now and then. So I'm a longtime Blizzard loyalist. I uh, love everything that Blizzard produces, for better or worse, um, and I've been gaming since... Uh, well, since I can remember, uh, on on every platform, I've owned almost every video game platform that's existed, all the way back to Atari. For Ichu, what was the first video game you guys really like fell in love with? I think po- Pokemon Blue for me. That was just Ooh. got a got a Game Boy Color. That was one of the first consoles that my my parents got me. I must have beaten that thing like probably ten times. Wow. Okay. I would say. Um... Oh boy, there's been so many. I think for me, it would probably be on PlayStation Final Fantasy VII. Um, the uh, the story to that RPG and and what Square did um, was was awesome. I loved it. Uh, it. Definitely captured like this magical time in my childhood where I was very into like fantasy and stuff like that. And uh, and then secondly, World of Warcraft. World of Warcraft was a game changer as far as producing an MMO. Like we had MMOs before that, but they were not very well produced, EverQuest, Ultima Online, stuff like that. The level that Blizzard took it to with World of Warcraft and the amount of time I've invested in World of Warcraft since was definitely a big chunk of my life. When that came out, there was a special feeling around WoW and and everything that went along with it. And just to decode, uh, MMO, massively multiplayer online game, is that right? Correct, yeah, massively multiplayer online. Now, nowadays you can't really tell the difference because many games have kind of MMO feels to them. They're, they're all online. They're all open world and interacting with the community. But uh, those were the, some of the first that really brought people together were, the, were that uh, genre of Warcraft, Ultima Online, EverQuest, stuff like that. Hmm. Others? For me, I would say kind of the first RPG I played uh, was Secret of Mana on Super Nintendo. That one opened it up for me because that was the first kind of multiplayer RPG I played. Now, this is like long before any kind of online rpg or mmo mm-hmm. so i was like you're sitting right next to the people that you're playing with nowadays you know you don't need to be sitting next to the that person so we've cost kind of lost a little bit of that feel and i would say same with dan you know pokemon i still play it till this day like 20 years later so secret of mana was online too, JP. that that was the first cooperative rpg i think that i can remember and uh getting to play with my buddies in like one of those games was was super cool i remember playing that game a lot let's put on our security hats here uh all of you outlined a couple different platforms some of you pc gamers some of you console gamers from a security perspective does the platform really matter all that much and i guess at a high level when we're talking about security for these Uh, modern games, massively multiplayer online games, many of them. What types of things are we talking about? So on console games, uh, console is not super my specialty. I know that a lot of people do what the equivalent are to like jailbreaking us on on consoles, right? Where they get access to the OS and then on the operating system of the PlayStation or the Xbox, or if you can somehow get in the middle between the traffic and and monitor it, like it's usually usually the same issues that you have on a PC because they're ultimately like, you know, a lot of the same architectures and concepts but but yeah i i see less like technical cheating on consoles uh nowadays um and more environment-based cheating and that's actually one of the topics i'm like super interested in since i'm a security guy i um i really love the extra facets of security that go alongside a game um nowadays in, in any like way like if you look at if you look at the the security realms or things related to security in a game um, for your average gaming company, it's uh, it's much more robust than what you have to protect, even just with like probably a single web app, right? You have 
Um, you have areas of the game that are, um, you know, if you're running a massively multiplayer online game, you have an economic system inside that basically dictates how happy your player base is and how you've designed that. And if someone finds uh, air quotes exploit in that or like a glitch or a cheat somehow there, it could ruin the sentiment of your game completely. And this has happened in multiple games. Um, and that's an area that you don't always have to worry about with a web app, right? I'm not running an mm -hmm. economy on Bug Crowd right now. Uh, Bug Crowd, you know, is very, very simple in its uh, in its use case compared to some of these games that have uh, a player base, an economy. You also have client security. You have server-side security. You have to worry about denial of service and uptime. Um, you have to worry about uh, protection of users who are underage, like griefing and, and all of these things. And there are just so many aspects that touch security around games. In fact, I, I talked to a buddy of mine, Brett, um, who works at Blizzard all the time about uh, how big of a scope of a job. It's no longer one security team that, that does this. Network monitoring is a separate group. Um, player, base, player base sentiment is a different group. Client server technology and protecting against pretty traditional exploits is a separate group, you know, economy cheating, there's a whole economy team. So there's, there's definitely a lot of stuff that goes on in games that you have to touch around security. Yeah, and then on, on the consoles, a little bit more on the console side is that, like Jason had said, you know, it's consoles now are getting more closer to the hardware that PCs and phones are using, because back in the day, you know, consoles had their own kind of custom hardware, but they're moving towards more of the commodity hardware that's out there. So what does that mean? Then that means the same exploits that work on phones and computers now work on game consoles. And it's, the security is a little bit different on consoles, just that in terms of what hackers are looking at, basically they want to do things like run emulators or run homebrew and those type of games, uh, more closer to piracy, I would say, or like homebrew right. versus kind of you know, taking over, you know, and messing up an economy in the game or griefing or things that you would see on, on the PC side. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, when I think about gaming security, I think the first thing that comes to mind is sort of copyright protection and anti-piracy, right? So you want to make sure that somebody doesn't rip the game and, you know, play it on their own. And, and that, I guess, historically has been the main concern. But Jason, as you point out, I mean, these game environments are really their own mini economies, sometimes not so many, and, yeah. and also and also communities, online communities on top of that. So so it is it is a really complex problem. Uh, I got into game security or the idea of it when I was running an OWASP project, which was the game security framework. And what I was I was trying to do is, you know, what, what we have is a couple of big players in the industry, at least from what I've heard. Um, like the like the valves and the maybe like, you know, like a big publisher like EA and definitely Blizzard and, and some other publishers who uh, and gaming companies who have security teams who've dealt with all of these types of problems before. So they have operations and procedures and even whole group that are dedicated to um, solving these things or at least looking at them. But other mid tier gaming companies and especially new developers or publishers and, and God forbid indie people are not focusing on security at all. They're 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 focusing on getting their game out to market. For for better or worse, it's very much like the actually the IoT industry and security. And so they don't get any guidance on how to protect against these issues or think about their game from a threat scenario. So what I did with a couple of my buddies was went out to like underground forums that were dedicated to hacking and all facets of hacking, exploiting economies in um, MMOs, trying to get advantages in first-person shooters by like messing with packets, client security, network security, everything. And these these forums are places where hackers coalesce and post this kind of stuff, sometimes for money and sometimes for not. And everything that was free, we started parsing out 
and deconstructing and saying, okay, this is the type of attack this is. Let's generally talk about this and put it, you know, in the first iteration was just in a spreadsheet and classify it. And then so when new game developers come out, they can see this history in this context of how games are most commonly cheated um, or taken advantage of. And so that was the project is to try to classify what threats games see most often nowadays. And it was really eye-opening to see all of the facets. And then I ran into this book called um, Protecting Games by uh, Stephen Davis, which I, I kind of just dived into, which talks about all of these things we're talking about today. Uh, he's a former NSA uh, employee and, um, and he wrote he moved into the gaming industry and wrote about all the facets DRM and software protection was the first thing that he got into but then he moved quickly into you know all of these other areas we're also talking about is a really interesting rabbit hole to fall down for uh, a year doing that project when I look at sort of my news feed you know what you see is denial of service attacks like with the most recent Assassin's Creed release, account takeover, right? Various kinds of phishing or malware campaigns that don't use game platforms, but maybe have malicious downloads that pose as like mobile versions of games and stuff like that. Is that pretty much what you guys are seeing and are concerned with? Or are there more subtle uh, attacks and threats out there? I think a really interesting one that uh, was just in the news is actually uh, the Epic Games Android installer that was used to install Fortnite, um, it relied on this right external, or it had the right external storage permission on Android. Um, and the you know, Epic Games was telling all the people installing it to actually install this APK via, you know, not, not via the, the Google Play Store, which um, Google wasn't very happy about because, you know, they get a 30% cut of revenue from stuff that comes through the store. And, uh, you know, so there was a little bit of a... Um, controversy about this, Google ended up finding a vulnerability, um, proving that if you can write to this spot that APKs are installed from by this third-party application, you can just get it to install whatever APK you want. Um, it won't actually really ver verify what it's installing. So those type of sort of client-side binary switching um, or, you know, mobile permissions issues, that's pretty well-known vulnerability that we've, we've seen on, on mobile. But that's that being applied to games, especially in the context of you know, someone trying to circumvent the Play Store was very interesting, especially given that Google was actually the one that published details about the, the vulnerability. What's really interesting to me is, is like when a game builds a new system for for players and people find interesting ways to circumvent, you know, the controls that the game normally had. And I'll give you, I'll give you an example from one of the games I'm playing right now. So a long time ago, the game, game released this feature called Collections in, in Destiny 2. And, um, and in Collections, any piece of loot that you ever picked up on your journey through this game, which is a shooter and a MOBA at the same time, you would be able to basically dismantle or disenchant so it didn't take up space in your inventory. But then later on through the collections tab in um, the settings, you could request it back. And so what happened is over three expansions of this game so far, um, there were a couple weapons in there that um, that people found out that you could get from your collections, pay a nominal amount to retrieve a copy of this weapon from your collections if you wanted to play with it, and then immediately re-disenchant it, and it would give you more, more currency than it cost you to purchase it out of your collections. So if you scripted, if you scripted this up using a program, you effectively had infinite money or infinite um, uh, you know, like in materials. Um, and these are the things I find really interesting because, you know, like how do you technologically check for things like that, right? It's like every new system you design, you have to go back and be like, how is this going to break? Are there controls on like a currency threshold here? And then 
you know, on the detection side, it's like, okay, do I have a knock that's watching for people who called the same API too many times? And then I go investigate that um, for, you know, potential like exploits. Is that even an exploit? Like it's definitely damaged. It was definitely damaging to the community um, because people getting infinite money screws with the game, um, especially if currency is worth something in that game in a multiplayer game. But, uh, you know, technically as a security guy, before I looked into games, I wouldn't call that an exploit. I would call that like, I, I don't know what I would call it, but it's, it's not a, it's not a buffer overflow for sure. Like, um, so, so those are the ones I track and, and it's interesting. You can follow the community of your game. Um, usually the best news about those types of things is usually actually on the subreddit for the game itself. So um, the subreddits are, are vibrant collections of power users of the game. Um, and that's usually that information comes out first is like how to do those in-game like tricks to, you know, like get an advantage. And um, those are things that really interest me is, is economy exploits. Uh, like, uh, you know, there's like also the quintessential um, I forget this was in WoW. I forget what iteration of WoW, but uh, you know, like finding like the one rock in the in the boss room that everybody could stand on and the boss couldn't reach, and you just kill the boss with impunity. Um, and these are things mm -hmm. that are glitches and kind of QA issues, uh, but and they're not security related, but they end up affecting the reputation of your game, and so you have to design the system of checks to check for. Um, so there's like a there's like a lot of stuff that I think is really interesting around game design when I when we dig into it and, and figure out like, uh, you know how how you have to protect your game. You know, if security if security in a broad sense is protecting your yeah um, your asset, it's uh, it's it's definitely is part of the conversation. It it is interesting because I guess you know reputation is really everything with games because of course you're competing for people's time and attention with many other wonderful games. Um, uh, you know, unlike you know, a vulnerability and, you know, word for windows or something like that, you know, where it's like, well, you know, if there's a vulnerability, I'm still going to use word as my word processor, <laughs> you know, it doesn't, it's not going to change my use patterns, but if the reputation of the game is impacted by a, you know, a trivial kind of cheat like that, yeah, people go elsewhere, right? I mean, the, the crowd moves on. The number of indie game publishers, and Jason mentioned this earlier, but we have so many publishers now who are creating these games I'm distributing them completely themselves. And like Jason said, there are these power users who are really, really good at finding these glitches. And what's what I think is great, those people are thinking like, like hackers. I mean, that is very much um, fundamentally kind of what it's about. It's identifying uh, anomalies, patterns, you know, new updates are made to the game, what types of inputs and outputs are there. And I think that that, um, that pattern is actually really great. I like to see so many people, especially without a security background, actually kind of employing that type of thinking. Yeah, I was going to ask you, I mean, what is the overlap between um, playing a game and test, quote unquote, testing a game for vulnerabilities, pen testing a game for vulnerabilities? Are, are they one and the same thing? Or is the process of finding flaws in the game something you do apart from playing it? I think you do it with a little bit more methodology. When you're just playing a game, you might happen across uh, glitch by mistake, but when you're, like I remember when we would, we would always, our version of game hacking was looking for ways to get out of the map in Halo. That was always fun. But, you know, you test it like the Velociraptors in, in Jurassic Park. You know, one little spot at a time, mm -hmm. an advanced method all. Yeah, I think it, it's kind of the same thinking, but it's a little bit different in that when you're trying to doing, you're kind of doing testing in games as you're yeah, trying to do out of bounds stuff or like things that affect in-game things. However, with 
kind of penetration testing, there's more a little bit more you're looking at, all right, what's the impact of the vulnerability that I'm, that I'm finding? Can I do something more with it? Can I exfiltrate data? Things like that where um, it's impacting the game, but in a different way. It's not impacting the actual game mechanics. You're impacting much more of like the economy or things that you can do in the game or things that you can take out of the game. I mean, that is not to say that, that there aren't um, actual technical bugs in games. I mean, if you, you know, like the Steam launcher has been subject to plenty of traditional security exploits. So has every other launcher and almost every game is launched by a launcher now these days uh, because, you know, each publisher has a collection of games or they're part of a collection of studios that's all going to go through the same piece of software to launch the executables. So those have been a big target in the last couple of years for traditional security, uh, you know, vulnerabilities. Um, as well. So like buffer overflows or, uh, you know, or anything like that. And so those, those exist, they come out every, you know, one to three months, a new one will, will come out and, um, you know, you'll see normal software patches to upgrade those as well. So, yeah. I, I mean, I tend to think of the gaming industry as one where there is a tremendous amount of pressure on publishers to get games out on a timeline uh, or schedule that that they've probably created themselves uh, and a lot of fan expectation to get games out on time. That would seem to me to be a situation that is ripe for uh, short changing security or deprioritizing security testing and so on in order to you know get that game released and so on is that a dynamic that you see as well that um you know particularly with small publishers you know security might fall down on the list in the rush to get the the actual game out the door there's uh, a lot of companies that are using sort of centralized like anti-cheat systems that are these plugins that you know they, they won't worry about security until it becomes a problem. I know um, like Bluehole with PUBG, as that you know that really took off so fast. And you know when you're making that much money, you have that many players, um, the stress is super high. So of course you're going to try and offload some of the things you can. And uh, security is one of those things where with with cheating it became a huge problem, and they had to retroactively try and crack down. And I know they implemented um, I forget which one, but an anti cheat system that they didn't author. It was a you know third party thing. Yeah, and then you know it's it's not it's not just in gaming. It's pretty much with anything where you're trying to you have you have aggressive deadlines, and the the bottom line is you as as a company you're you're trying to make money. So security becomes an afterthought until like what Dan said. It's like it's not a problem until it becomes a problem, and it's much bigger than if they had actually taken care of it before you know a game went gold. I think that the quintessential thing that was eye-opening for me is when I was doing research for that OWASP project, I reached out to a ton of game security people, uh, basically cold call them. Um, luckily, I have some reputation in the industry, and it was able to get me some meetings with these people who run security at, at games or who have been involved in large security groups at game publishers. Um, and um, I'll never forget a quote I got from one guy. It was just verbatim, do not do this project. Do not waste time on this project. The games industry does not care about security. Um, and this was pretty recently too. Ouch. Yeah. He said, go spend your time working on something that's, that's going to be meaningful to you. Um, and it didn't deter me because I'm passionate about games. And I think that the intersection between gaming and security is really fun and I'll continue to do research on it. That was really eye-opening to me. And it was a repeated thing that I heard 
from from people inside the games industry, except for the really, really big publishers mm -hmm. that um, and that's like the blizzards of the world. They obviously do take uh, security very seriously, but most other publishers don't. And then the, the corollary to that was that we had a couple of games that if you look at the hype that was associated around them, and I played one of them, it was uh, The Division, the amount of game breaking glitches and bugs and exploits even on a console game, which is relatively well protected from tampering in some cases, uh, for that game actually caused it to fail. It wasn't the content. It wasn't the gameplay. People enjoyed the gameplay. Um, but it was the groundbreaking breaking amount of bugs um, that people were cheating with. I mean, it cost them their player base until they patched everything out. And uh, by that time, a lot of people weren't willing to come back. And that was the general sentiment inside of the subreddits associated to the game and the community outside of the game. And so, yeah, I mean, I think people nowadays, because of just the access to information, the communities that are growing outside of their own forums can be forced into learning this lesson at a more accelerated pace than they are used to in previous years. And I think that's great because um, honestly, the more that happens, the more they'll start thinking about security up front uh, and baking it into whatever processes they have. And we can we can move to more secure games, which is which is what I want, basically. And then piggybacking on that is is also not just security, but privacy. And it drives away gamers and users. I know recently with you know, a fighting game called Street Fighter V, there was a privacy issue where uh, Capcom had actually put a, as an anti-cheating kind of mechanism, they put in a keylogger basically. It, it was it was basically you know a rootkit, a malware rootkit called Capcom.sys, uh, and it's a, it's a big meme in the fighting game community. And that's the kind of thing that drives users away is that you know there's a balance that that you need to do between not just security but privacy as well because that really affects your user base if you're logging keystrokes. From, from that user, right? It's it's where do you where do you draw the line on how you should effectively secure your game? Really, that these games can become platforms for real world crime, in particular from money laundering. So people taking ill-gotten yep. gain and, and basically washing it as into a game coin and then back out. Yep. Is that where most of the heat and light is in terms of attacks on game platforms and, and folks poking around looking for uh, flaws or vulnerabilities? I know just from some of the conversations I had that um, it is where they get the most heat from or involvement from law enforcement, right? Which definitely opens eyes at a company because, you know, legal has to get involved when, you know, the FBI knocks at your door and says, as an extreme example, but actually happened, you know, terrorists are using your chat to communicate, right? And so this is stuff that really happens. That that actually happened in World of Warcraft where they're tracking cells of terrorists through game chat at Blizzard. So when the FBI comes knocking at your door, you definitely have to de de uh, develop some resources to enable them. Um, if you don't have the technological means to track chat at, in a game, which in publishers not like Blizzard, you know, who are that big, uh, you need to develop them very quickly. You need to figure out how to audit your logs. Um, so yes, yeah, so there's a lot of stuff that goes along with, with that. And they pay special attention to those instances. The other one is the mother, money laundering. And I'm not gonna say that um, it was me, but it, maybe it was someone uh, like me um, who, uh, you know, who at one point wanted to buy something off the dark web and the primary currency that you paid for this thing um, is, uh, is a game currency. You funneled real world currency into the game currency and then out from the game currency into real world currency somewhere else. And that's how the money was essentially laundered. 
that is a whole other aspect that you have to think of when you when you open up these games is, is how the payment systems work, um, how how you allow money in, and then how you also allow money out of the game if you do it all. Final question: Can we talk about Fortnite? <laughs> I'm a PUBG fan, so I'll let the other guys talk about Fortnite. I mean, Fortnite is a huge, incredibly popular uh, multiplayer game. Anything new from a security perspective that has emerged from from Fortnite worth noting, or is it uh, pretty much you know the same types of uh, problems, issues that we see with other games? Yeah, I mean, earlier I mentioned the kind of mobile in- like installer issue uh, that was pretty interesting. In terms of actual kind of game integrity stuff, I know that Fortnite relies super heavily on microtransactions um, as a part of their monetization. Selling like da- dances and outfits, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, you can make your like your weapons look different, skins, stuff like that. Um, yeah, I, I haven't heard of anything explicit like that. But what's interesting is in games like Fortnite, I have heard of uh, something Jason alluded to earlier, which is people having their accounts, you know, people trying to fish them or trying to take over their account. They'll get, you know, Password reset emails. I know a couple of streamers that I've watched have definitely said like they'll get weird password reset emails or other notifications about their account because people are constantly trying to take them over. Given the the value associated with their with their name, with their you know microtransaction acquired items, stuff like that. Yeah, and it makes sense too because Fortnite's pretty much the biggest game, not just on Twitch but just on the internet. So the attack surface is huge. So a lot of hackers have a lot to gain from taking over, you know, popular streamers account or, you know, being able to, you know, steal money from transactions, especially if, you know, it, it's highly, um, you know, microtransactions is, is, is highly, you know, sought after because that's how they make most of their money. I mean, I'm just doing cursory analysis, right, of, uh, of, of the Fortnite community, but they suffer from a lot of the shooter bugs that are pretty common in in games and this is due to their emote system so every emote does something and interacts in a way that changes the camera perspective and how your character is normally supposed to move and so what it does is there's a bunch of exploits out right now which are letting people shoot through walls and stuff using certain emotes and things like that because it uh, essentially pushes your character and moves your character in a way that was unexpected next to a surface in the game that's supposed to be hard and not movable and so there's like mm-hmm. a whole bunch of shooting through walls and stuff like that which is an unfair advantage in the game and then there's inventory issues where people can um you know store more than you know your allotted number of weapons in Fortnite. and so these are all it seems like all issues that have kind of plagued the game and these are very common for shooter uh shooter games as well these exist almost universally is is getting x and y axis and um and collision correct in games um and then Mm -hmm. like inventory management um there's pretty small though i would say in the broad spectrum of things i would say to a company like Fortnite uptime and and account security are probably more important to them than these small things and they can patch these as they go along like infinite ammo you know not taking damage those would be bugs that would be groundbreaking that they need to triage pretty quickly if anything like those happen but I, i seem to see that a lot of them are mostly environmental here yeah, I could really use that not taking damage cheat if it's up there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Any of you guys as a as a 40, 40 something Fortnite player. So it, final question, if there are folks out there listening uh, to this who might be avid gamers and might feel like, hey, I'm actually pretty good at, you know, whether sniffing out cheats or, you know, finding um, flaws or vulnerabilities in, in games that, that I play, um, things that are kind of just not right. Um, how can they get started becoming a game-focused 
security slash vulnerability researcher? I mean, I know um, from my limited experience with the game companies that I work with and I have friends at, really the the pedigree is is having been a game hacker. It's it's very much like the beginnings of penetration testing was. Uh, a couple of the the guys I know at Blizzard started off hacking Blizzard and then eventually you know, got involved with talking to the team somehow through email or through whatever, and maybe they post a blog or maybe they responsibly disclose it or something like that. And, um, and, uh, and then eventually got an interview and talked about their methodology for doing this type of work. And so if you're, if you're someone who's good at, at sussing out these issues, um, uh, there are game companies who want, who want your skills um, and they're, they're willing to pay for them as well. And there's also, you can just Google, um, you know, put in bug crowd and, gaming company or just gaming company bounty. And you can find some bounties out there um, to kind of even prove your skill. This has been something universally across our platform that a lot of people are using is um, on bug bounties, finding some bugs, submitting them, getting them triaged and getting rewarded, and then using this kind of um, you know small bit of publicity to say that, hey, yeah, I've worked with this company before, this gaming company before, and I found real issues. And it's a real boon to your resume when you, you know apply to those kinds of places. So um, that would be a way in. Um, they're always posting on their job sites for security engineers. I don't think I've ever seen a job posting board for a game company that didn't at least have one security engineer position. Um, so there's a lot of ways to to look into it. Um, and uh, and I would say just keep on top of the communities and, and the games that you're interested in, right? Like see what kind of issues they're facing, uh, go in prepared with that knowledge and then talk to them about gaming security and how you would help. I think those are just very general tips. Yeah, I would, I would definitely um, agree that going to, especially for an indie game, uh, like I, I play Escape from Tarkov, which is this uh, sort of survival shooter game. And it, since it's, you know, by this separate studio that's di distributing it themselves, uh, they, the, the community is really, really intense about scrutinizing every detail. And if you start to read up on some of the details, some of the previous bugs that have been found, um, I think it'll help you a lot in terms of getting better uh, about understanding like how the game actually works fundamentally and in terms of security in general, a lot of, of you know, really good hackers, the, the way they get good is by understanding how the systems are attacking actually work, um, how they're built and really trying to put themselves in the minds of the people who built them. Uh, and then looking at what's been found, because plenty of these systems, um, games especially, have disclosed bugs, um, you can start to identify certain patterns that are likely to be repeated. So I think you know, pick a game you really like, uh, if you want to hack games and start to break down, you know, how is this actually built? Um, you know, maybe they made a mistake that is pretty fundamental and even if they keep patching things, there's going to... I think part of the methodology that I've heard of before too, uh, from a couple of testers who are in this realm is, is focus a lot on patches, like uh, content updates and patches. When new systems are added, they're, they never quite integrate or mesh well with mm -hmm. old systems. Um, and so that's where a lot of the game breaking kind of things happen and because of like you mentioned the rush to put out content you know security issues and even what would be considered game breaking glitches or farms or exploits or things like that tend to get overlooked in, in lieu of a launch date for the content so any type of big content or um, patch to the game um, you know you kind of go in with the mind of regression testing and being like all right what did they add in this you know what didn't do this in the past how can i exploit this scenario uh, you know one thing we didn't talk about at all is is the avenue of security in games as, as far as botting goes. Like this is a huge realm as well as is, is botting and, and stuff like that. That's a whole nother realm of unfair player advantage by automating the game. And, and that's another thing people have to worry about. So a lot of stuff. 
Yeah, I think watching speedrunners is a great way to also learn about some roles. Um, I know I love watching GDQ. They always explain what they're doing, like how they found the bug, what their process was. It's always really interesting. Yeah, I would say definitely hacking on bug bounty programs is the best way to get into things because it is legal and at the same time you can profit from it. So you can learn pretty much all of the techniques and do what Dan says, like learn from all of the past disclosures, read up on all of those, because it gets your mind thinking about what the possibilities are, no matter what the game is. Like, doesn't matter which genre it is, doesn't matter who the publisher is or who developed the game, it's all kind of the same kind of thinking. And then you can apply that to other other games and, or even other hardware platforms. I, I will say as a quick plug, uh, because we, we really like encouraging people to get better at these skills. Uh, we started something called Bug Card University, um, which kind of includes a lot of content meant to teach you how to hack, basically. So um, that's another good resource. You know, we're continuing developing. We want feedback. So if you are interested in, in learning this stuff, then check it out and let us know what you think. That's not specifically game related, but you can learn some of the some of the skills you need, right? Yeah, exactly. And these will transfer to games and, you know, maybe we'll, uh, maybe we'll add a game section. Yeah. Good idea. Hey guys, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on the Security Ledger about gaming security and finding security flaws in uh, online games. No problem. Thanks for having us. Up next, the security of election systems is often presented as an intractable mess, so hopelessly flawed that a 10-year-old girl can make short work of sophisticated vote-counting consoles. But our next guest says that many of the dire warnings about insecure voting systems and the risks of vote hacking may be overblown. Srinivas Mukamala is the CEO of RiskSense, and he notes that the U.S. election system is both distributed and mostly offline. In this interview, Srinivas and I talk about the state of play in the U.S. election system and how states and municipalities may benefit by taking a risk-based approach to election security. Srinivas Mukamala, I'm one of the co-founders and CEO of RiskSense. So RiskSense is a cyber risk prioritization company with a focus to really assist companies prioritize what to do and to really manage the results in a way that's meaningful and present it so everybody in the organization really understands what it is. We're a couple of weeks out from, in the United States, the November midterm elections, big kind of congressional elections, also a lot of state and local elections happening. So it's, it's a big political event. And as has been the case um, for a while now, there are reports about tampering or efforts to influence voters and also certainly concerns about tampering with the electoral infrastructure itself, whether those are voting machines or um, vote tabulation systems or what have you. From your perspective there at RiskSense, um, what is what is your take on sort of the state of play right now in the elections space? the voting space regarding, you know, cybersecurity? Are things as bad as we're reading about? Or is there a little bit of hysteria around this because of what's happened in the past? The way the elections are conducted in the U.S., it's a distributed system, which is really good. From a cybersecurity perspective, if you want to have a catastrophic event, you want that system to be connected. In the U.S., the electoral system is not a connected system. It is still very distributed. It's very localized. So which means you can influence an election 
you can create local biases, but you cannot really change the electoral. So that's a very important thing. But then you can get into swing counties. We can keep going into what I consider outliers and really start creating, right? You can magnify the outliers. So from the current state where we are today, is there really a catastrophic thing that can happen to the election infrastructure? The answer is no. Will there be disruptions? Will there be mistrust? Answer is yes. The big problem we're facing with the United States election is the emotions are pretty high and the mistrust is what's creating that uncomfortability, if you would say. I mean, election is near and dear to everyone. It's your right. And when people start taking away or tampering with your right, you get extremely emotional. To me, that's the way I look at it. From an infrastructure and a technology perspective, we're definitely in a much better state than we were. And I can get into specifics as we move forward. What do you consider the biggest risk to uh, of elections and voting in the U.S. right now? So water registration systems are one of the biggest concerns. I mean, I've been saying this for right even before... 2016, 2014 is when we came out and we clearly articulated that it is important and critical that we start looking at ecosystem risk. You asked a very good question, what does risk sense do? That's one of the things risk sense does. It looks at your attack surface. A lot of people, when they talk about cyber risk, they're so focused on siloed based it's it's important when you're talking about a system of systems when you look at an election it is a consolidation of multiple systems right so in 2014 one of the things we talked about is take a look at the life cycle of an election where does it start the journey starts when a voter goes in registers himself to vote that's your source of truth. And that is super important. Who is building that system? How are they building it? Are they introducing any vulnerabilities? Are we continuously checking for vulnerabilities and the threats associated? And when the system actually gets into production, how are we actually looking at that? So if you take a look at the journey of how a water registration system gets built, we did not spend enough time and energy in understanding the risks it's going to pose to the overall election. Still today, that has been and that is one of the biggest concerns because every data element that needs to be validated, verified against, and used to really declare an election relies on your water registration because that's the start of the thing. And these systems are getting more and more connected and they're becoming, I would call, co-hosted, hosted, or they're on the cloud for some states because the vendors are actually hosting the systems as well, which is opening up a different attack layer altogether. So you've talked or we've talked uh, a lot about the potential to use artificial intelligence and machine learning as a way to 
improve the security of the election systems, spot threats, either emerging threats or existing threats. Draw that picture for us, sketch that out a little bit as to how you think states and the federal government might apply AI and machine learning technologies that are very much being used in the information security space, um, but in the context of securing elections. Today, there are about 114,000 unique vulnerabilities. That is every disclosed vulnerability within the national vulnerability database. It is not millions. It is not billions. A lot of security vendors tend to use millions and billions. That is not true. I wish we had millions and billions of vulnerabilities and attack data. Mm. The reason I say I wish, that's in a good sense. For AI, we need more data, more data that's labeled. So my prediction, my classification will be a lot more richer and a lot more accurate. So today, I don't have that luxury. So we are what we consider is a data-starving environment. For AI, you don't want to starve it with data. So how are we helping the election security? So when we have 114,000 unique vulnerabilities, only a subset of that is really affecting the systems, the software, the databases, the libraries that are actually being used to build the election ecosystem, the example I talked about, right? The vendor that builds the voter registration system, the company that builds your tabulation, the company that builds your poll books, the company that prints your poll books. So when you look at the collection of the systems, you're probably talking about 10 to 12,000 unique vulnerabilities. So you already reduced your data set of what you should be really looking and focusing by to under 10% of what's known. Then what we look at is what's considered weaponization. The definition here is when a vulnerability is released, the first thing an attacker would do is he would like to weaponize it. I will simplify that even further. A weaponization means I'm writing an exploit and converting that probably to an exploit tool so multiple people can use. That's the first step a vulnerability gets really, really utilized by the bad guys. They weaponize that. So when I look at my 10,000, my weaponization will come down to probably about 1,000 or 2,000. Not every vulnerability that's being disclosed gets weaponized. So from a factual number perspective, out of the 114,000 total, only 24,000 are weaponized. And when you look at your 10% averages, you're talking about about 2,400. Again, that is not enough. And that's not important either. What we have to look at is how many of them are remote code executable. This is what attackers are after. If you go back and take a look at the breaches over the last 10 years, majority of the breaches that were technological in nature other than traditional theft or remote code execution. And there are only 4,000 that are available that are disclosed. So when you bring down that number to your electoral, you're talking about 300 or 400. Mm -hmm. And then what you look at is how many of them are really trending? 
if you remember, we keep talking about human bias. And when you use AI, AI magnifies that bias as well. So in this particular case, not every exploit is built alike. Not every RCE is built alike. How we use trending in news, we also use trending in exploits as well. Which exploit is being talked the most? Which one is actually trending? Which one has the maximum impact when that's being used? And that number is in actually single digits and double digits. When you look at election systems, you're bringing that number down to about 40 to 50 things that you should really focus on. So take a look at this. The 114, what we all are concerned, we already prioritized that to 10,000. And from 10,000, we said, wait a minute, we can even further prioritize this. We brought it down to under 2,000. And we said, okay, even 2,000 is a big number. Where do I focus? We brought it down to 200. And we said, how can we even get more prioritized? We brought it down to under 50. So if we take a look at this, at each step, there is iterative learning. There is analysis done by the machine intelligence and human validation as well. It is so critical that the convergence of AI and human intelligence is important to have the confidence in what we're doing because we're trying to protect a very important asset for the country and we want to validate that. So the way we do it is instead of telling, go fix this 100 things, we prioritize it every single day. When a security analyst who is trying to secure an election walks in, the first thing we tell them is, hey, these are the 40 things you've got to look at today. Think about it as an agile way of vulnerability remediation versus your traditional waterfall. Your waterfall would be, I got to go fix this 20,000 things, no matter what it takes, right? Versus an agile would be, I'm going to get these 10 things mm -hmm. done first. And tomorrow morning when I come in, if there are other 10 things that are priority, I will address that first. So it's always goes by shrinking the attack surface that has the maximum impact versus just playing the numbers game. So that's where AI can help a lot because if you take a look at this, all these things have that human knowledge and AI is now actually building confidence and repeating this process, what humans define. And it does a very good job at doing that. I mean, it strikes me that one of the big challenges here is we're, as you said, we are talking about very decentralized um, infrastructure. So there are many different potential, I guess, quote unquote, customers for, for this technology, right? And use cases. And also uh, that we're talking about the public sector and, you know, um, a little bit of a stereotype, but in general, public sector, um, not as quick to embrace, adopt uh, new technology and new approaches. And so uh, that might be an, an impediment as well. If you take a look at the innovations we're talking about, all these things actually came from the public sector, right? I mean, think about that. We were funded by three-letter agencies. You know, I was the chief scientist for solving some active problems for two major wars. So if you take a look at that perspective, a lot of innovation actually comes from public sector. AI bias, I mean, we call it expandable AI or transparent AI. All that research is actually coming from the public sector, not from private sector. DARPA is putting $2 billion to understand and make AI more transparent rather than a black box. So that's more on the research side. 
and on the federal government side. You're right. Elections are not a federal government thing. They're state and local. A lot of people don't quite get that. Your statement does hold true for a lot of underserved, under-resourced state and county governments. Yes. Srinivas Mukamala of Resense, thanks so much for coming in and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. Thank you. Srinivas Mukamala is the CEO of the firm Resense. He was talking to us about the security of election systems in the United States ahead of next week's midterm elections. Thank you.